Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast this week, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki, here as always with John Mitchell. We've got some off-season stuff to talk about this week. None of it will be dealing with the Combine, because we're a college football podcast, everybody. These guys are going pro now in something that is sports. So we're going to be talking, first of all, about some comments from USC Athletic Director Mike Bone recently that alluded to the concept that the Trojans might look at independence or another conference or basically getting the hell away from the Pac-12. So we're going to talk about that a bit before we go into our second segment, looking at some proposed NCAA rules changes for 2020. We've got five of those on the table, so we'll break them all down. And then in our final segment, we're going to do a quick look at some early 2020 Heisman odds from a couple of different sports books and uh, see who might be the front runner and who might be that uh, second or third tier star who might sort of surprise us all in 2020. Before we get going this week, how are you doing, John? I'm doing well, doing well. Excited to be back with you, as always, uh, to talk college football, to give me that little bit of peace to get me through this off season. Yeah, it's, you know, it, we're only, what, we're in March now, everybody, so we've made it through another month. February's in, in the rearview mirror. So now we can uh, look toward March. We'll be starting to look at spring practices soon. I think a couple might have already started around the country. So, you know, we'll have a lot of fun stuff to get into uh, moving forward. But we don't have to talk about coaches this week, so that's nice at least. Uh, I think the carousel has finally cooled down. But we might have the carousel beginning to go on uh, realignment again soon if the the uh, recent comments from uh, USC Athletic Director Mike Bone are any indication. So he's only been on the job for four months since coming over from Cincinnati, John. And he was doing an interview with 24-7 Sports on their Peristyle podcast, and he you know, they asked him a question about whether he would consider going independent or looking for another conference. And he wrapped it up by basically saying everything is on the table, which sparked up a bunch of furor. Eight days later, you know, he he tried to clarify the statements. But at the same time, you know, I thought it was hilarious. You know, he talked about how difficult it would be to take USC out of the Pac-12 you know, not just because they're a football team, but because they have 21 sports enmeshed in this conference. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, almost immediately after he tells this to CBS Sports' Dennis Dodd, he uh, follows it up by saying, if the unexpected happened and NBC said, hey, we want to partner you guys with Notre Dame, then that's different. End quote. So, you know, and, you know, he said he didn't want to walk back his comments that he made on the Peristyle podcast. He was standing behind what he said. So that on the table, all that context, what did you think of these comments, John? Do you think there's any validity to the possibility that USC would go bolting for another league? 
I think there's always, in any comments like this, at least a shred of truth in them at some point, because this conversation has to have been had probably when he was, you know, being approached about the USC athletic director job with the powers that be in Los Angeles. I'm sure this was a conversation that was had about the potential for, you know, USC potentially moving on from the Pac-12 whether by joining another conference or going the independent route. Like you said, going the independent route has its own set of issues because you'd have to be, you know, the Pac-12 would have to be okay with USC staying in in other sports or they'd have to find another conference to take on their other sports while football was able to go the independent route, which, you know, USC is a big enough brand in football that they could certainly thrive as an independent, but it all comes down to if they can find the right partnership for, you know, other conference. But this would be, I don't know, I think we're a little bit ahead of the game with these kind of with comments. I don't think there's anything that is going to happen anytime soon. Um, it's obviously wishful thinking for a program like USC to be able to kind of mirror what Notre Dame's been able to do as an independent um, and seeing that Notre Dame's been able to, because a lot of people were saying, you know, in the playoff era, that it would be difficult if you don't win your conference or whatever, not being in a conference to make the playoff. Well, Notre Dame's made the college football playoff already, so that argument's already out the door. You know, they could have won, yeah. you know, two games and won a national title as an independent even in the playoff era. So that argument's out the door. Um, you know, we talked about it for several weeks now that the Pac-12 has struggled. They're struggling uh, money-wise. They're struggling to keep some of their coaches. Um, and it would be a death blow, I think, to the conference as a whole if USC left. Because I think that's the, particularly in football, what's really holding them up. And, you know, the Pac-12 would survive. They'd replace USC with somebody. But then again, you lose the Trojans and you start wondering what really separates the Pac-12 as a Power 5 conference when you've got, you know, the American Athletic Conference that could be trying to add and bolster up a little bit more, or even the Mountain West that maybe not as much last year, but the year before last, we talked about so much how um, strong that conference was top to bottom as well. Yeah, I mean, it, the the question I think that really has to be asked is, why would USC leave the Pac-12, and what would USC gain from leaving the Pac-12? And, you know, their history goes back to 1922 with the old Pacific Coast Conference. And, you know, there's a whole sordid history with that conference. We won't go deeply into it, but they're not a charter member of that original league, that forebear of what's now the Pac-12. So, you know, they're not being a charter member, I think, makes it so, on one hand, they're so enmeshed with the brand at this point. You know, historically, they really are. Not necessarily since it became the Pac-12, but the Pac-10 days, even going back to the Pac-8, they're, they're the brand in a lot of ways. So, I, I think on one hand, losing that does lose some of the mystique for the team. Uh, obviously, it's not going to go away. A brand like that is great. But, you know, we on one hand, we can talk about how they, they make, on average, per school, $11 million less from their Tier 1 TV contracts than 
the, you know, average of the other Power Five conferences. But on the other hand, you know, the best numbers we have now, the most accurate are from 2018 still. We don't have everything finalized from the distribution of the last season. But they made, on the other hand, $10 million more per season than Notre Dame does rolling as an independent in, you know, with their NBC contract and their partial payout from, you know, their their partial membership as an ACC member. Um, and then they get whatever they get in bowl games that just accrues to them entirely. But we've talked about bowl financing in the past. That's a, you know, that's a bit of fool's gold in itself in a lot of ways, considering everything ancillary that you have to pay out to get to that bowl game. So, you know, I, I, I think it's kind of a wash in that regard. I mean, if NBC indeed did come calling, as Bone alluded to, and said we want to put a deal on the table that gives both, you know, each school, USC and Notre Dame, $40 million a piece a year, I think they might start looking at it. But... Uh, unless you're starting to see those kind of numbers that give you a more advantageous deal than you have in the Pac-12, it, it it really seems more like he's blowing off steam, you know, in a podcast, just like the one we're doing here, more than any really credible threat. Right. I, You know, I wonder, too, what struck me... One of the things I really thought about right away, too, Zach, was remember... It's been, I guess, about a decade now where the idea of super conferences really became a real thing. We had the realignment when Missouri and Texas A&M joined the SEC, um, Colorado, jump ship to the Pac-12, all that. All that was going on. The talk was that we were going to get super conferences, and the Pac-12 was one of those conferences that was supposed to be one of the four 16-team super conferences that, that we were going to get. There were serious rumors back then that even Texas was thinking about leaving the Big 12 and joining the Pac-12. Um, and it's just crazy that in the decades since, how much that narrative has shifted from the Pac-12 being one of the preeminent powers in college football to now being the lower end of the Power 5 spectrum and constantly. And, you know, we've talked a lot about in defense of the Pac-12 all season last year about how there were some genuinely good teams in that conference and there was some genuinely exciting football all season long. And I think you and I both agree that the conference as a whole gets a bad rap, but yeah. that narrative is out there. Oh yeah. And that narrative drastically, and whether it's true or not, that narrative is out there and it, I think hurts the PAC 12s overall ratings their overall mystique. And I think that's part of, you know, a guy like Mike Bone coming in and taking over as athletic director at USC is probably smart to weigh those options, obviously. And I think probably at the end of the day, the best option is going to be um, for USC to stay put. But, I mean, you know, any every athletic director's job is to look for what's best for their school. Oh, of course. And, yeah, I mean, you can't fault him for you know, tossing that idea out there, throwing the idea bubble out to the ether and letting see what happens. And I think ultimately the one thing that really gets me is if you're looking at the Pac-12 and sort of the shifting fo 
you know, there's shifting fortunes since that last big realignment. You have to look at, first of all, we talked about money. When they were first at there, they were toward the top of the crest in terms of what teams made, you know, in their respective leagues. Since then, we've seen three conferences go to 14 teams. Uh, the Big 12 has faded to 10. The Big East is completely gone. Um, and, you know, out of it, out of its ashes was born the American Athletic Conference, but they're not a power conference anymore. And frankly, we both know the Big East wasn't for its last legs as a an automatic qualifying league either in the BCS days, but that's neither here nor there. Basically, what I'm getting at is the Pac-12 was riding high at that point. They were, you know breaking in money faster than any other conference I think for that bright you know that brief shining moment there they gambled on the Pac-12 network it, it has never been as well distributed as the Big 10 network or the SEC network or even the ACC network at this point you know, each of those has really done well in terms of distribution, both SEC and ACC, because they latched on to ESPN. And, you know, the Big Ten Network has just done well enough to get into a lot of households, and they built their brand around being in a lot of markets with a lot of people to, to rake in TV viewer eyeballs. So, it all makes sense. You know, the Pac-12 network, on the other hand, they went into a really expensive facility that, uh, you know, they, they've they struggled to get into cable packages. Uh, you know, they fought satellite providers. You know, they had an inauspicious start. And since then, it just hasn't gained any momentum. And... I know, you know, on the West Coast when I was there, it was easy enough to watch every Oregon game, but they also had their pod system where each market had its set, you know, they had Pac-12 Oregon, Pac-12 Washington, Pac-12 Northern California, Pac-12 Southern California, etc. And it, it was one of those things where when I moved down to the Bay Area, it became much harder even because of just those sorts of you know, issues. And so trying to craft itself simultaneously as a regional network and a national network, I think really is part of its detriment as well. And, you know, I think ultimately, is it worth it for USC? The big question I would say is right now, no just based on the numbers we have from a team like Notre Dame, that would be a real comparable from an independent level. And then, you know, you look at shifting to a different conference. Maybe the Big 12 tries to do what the Pac-12 talked about doing in becoming a Pac-16. Maybe they go and try to poach six top, you know, or even just a couple of teams closer by, and then they go after a USC and maybe the Arizona schools and getting Colorado back and maybe even sucking in Utah at that time as well. And then you go after like a Houston for your sixth school and you're also starting to weaken, you know, your 
your group, your preeminent group of five league that you're competing against in the area as well. That's something that could realistically enough happen in the future. Um, but I, at the same time, I think you're right. I think we've sort of seen the talk die down on super conferences. Uh, 14 has become a fairly manageable number. And I don't know that, team, you know, a league is going to want to grow to 16 or bigger at this point. Once you start getting to that point, you just kind of get really unwieldy in terms of the logistics of even playing every other team in your division. And then when do you ever get to play the other side? So, right, Particularly with the talk of expanding the playoff because you're wanting more games on the back end. You expand conferences, you might have to expand, you know, your regular season schedule. And then you're getting into the talk of people playing 17, 18, 19, even 20 games, which is a non-starter in terms of player safety and all that. The NFL right now is having a big issue with their new collective bargaining agreement that's going on because a big holdup is the fact that the owners and the league wants to add a 17th game and the players are basically telling them no way we're not doing a 17th game so and those guys get paid millions of dollars to do that and uh, these college kids you know obviously don't get paid anything unless you count you know textbooks and free education as they like to as the dissenters like to say obviously Zach we've had that talk Oh, yeah. Plenty of times, but um, one of the things that it also kind of reminded me of with this potential diversion from USC, it seems kind of familiar with Miami leaving the Big East because, you know, the Hurricanes were the Big East. They left. Virginia Tech left. The Big East became a shell of itself. Several years later, it dissolved in football to the American Athletic Conference, like you said, birthed from its ashes. So I wonder if USC left the Pac-12 would ultimately see the beginning of the end of that conference as a whole. Actually, what I think you'd see is the beginning of the end of the Mountain West. And here's why. Like, you know, the Big East was Miami and Virginia Tech. They were the kings of the league. When they left... They repopulated. They got Louisville. They got Cincinnati. They got those kind of schools that both of those schools, you know, that's, they became really relevant there in the late 2000s. Um, you know, Rockers for that, their own shining moment were, I, I think they made it all the way up to number two at one point, didn't they? So it was a Rutgers-South Florida game, I believe, in 2007 that wasn't either number one against number two or number two against number three. I want to say South Florida was number one or something like that. It was insane. Yeah. And that's 2007 the, was a weird year. It really was. Yeah. We, 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 we'll we be talking about that for decades to come, how weird that season was. But that's the thing is Louisville got really good. You know, they, they poached them from Conference USA. They poached Cincinnati. Um, I'm trying to think, I feel like there was one other school and I'm blanking on it, but that's neither here nor there. And slowly they just kept continuing to, to dive into the, the conference USA well, and that league, you know, just got passed by, by the conference that again was born out of the big East ashes. And at this point, it even looks like the Sun Belt is catching up to them. So it, it's one of those things where conference power is, you know, it's not static. And so what I think you'd see is if the Pac-12 lost a USC 
maybe a Colorado. But let's just assume that they only managed to poach those two teams, right? You see the Pac-10, or the yeah, it'd be the Pac-10 at that point. You'd either see it go back to being like, hey, we'll just be the Pac-10, go back to doing a round robin. It's not like they're selling out Levi's Stadium for every one of their championship games. And honestly, I think even when it goes to Las Vegas, I have my doubts about Pac-12 traveling for conference championships. It'll obviously be easier to get to Vegas, um, both in terms of cost of flights from most, you know, centers around the country, because Vegas loves to subsidize people coming to Vegas. Uh, and that stadium, there will be a novelty for a couple of years, but do you need conference championship games? You know, we talked about Notre Dame getting in despite not having one. Uh, you know, they always talked about that being what killed the the Big 12. But at this point, you can even run one if you only have 10 teams. That stipulation of 12 teams necessary is gone. So if you want to keep it as your novelty 10th game or, you know, 10th game in conference, do it. But I, I think at this point you can you can just shine that. But I think that's what happens is they go after schools like Boise State. That's finally when Boise State gets poached. They might go after a BYU. I I don't know that they would, honestly. Um, but, you know, private school, they lost one in USC. I could see it being a possibility. Um, you know, San Diego State, if they wanted to keep another team in Southern California geographically, is an option that's completely viable there in terms of, you know, the the location that they have, the recruiting grounds, the the ability for that city to, to take it on. So the recent basketball success San Diego State's having too exactly would definitely be alluring. So, you know, I think there are a lot of different options there that the Pac-12 wouldn't be hurt, but it's the group of five leagues they would be poaching from that would be severely diminished in the process. I mean, we've already seen the Western Athletic Conference die in terms of its football um, sponsorship, but, you know, I don't think the Mountain West would die completely, but in terms of its relevance, it could just completely torpedo quickly if that happened. Yeah, no, that's probably right. Well, I think we've talked this subject out to its completion, everybody, now that we're talking about, you know, the Mountain West and everything more than we are USC. So we're going to take our first quick break here. And when we come back, we'll be looking at the NCAA and what they might be getting right and what they might be getting weird with their new proposed rule changes for 2020. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everybody. I'm Zach Wigalki here at the Saturday Blitz podcast with John Mitchell. We just finished talking about USC's possibility of going out of the Pac-12 and just how serious current athletic director Mike Bohm might have actually been when he talked about that recently with 24-7 Sports. We're going to move on now to look at the NCAA and some proposed rule changes for 2020. There are five specific ones on the table that are going to the playing rules panel that meets next on April 16th. And I'd just like to walk through these with you quick, John, and we can, you know, 
kind of talk them out. There's some that are, you know, fairly logical, straightforward, and there are some that could have some some implications moving forward. So, <clears throat> first proposed rule change. Allowing only two players on the same team to wear the same number. Do you see any problem with this? No. <laughs> to be short and sweet, I could care less about that. <laughs> yeah, it's one where, you know, you see it on the list and you're like, okay, that's great. Moving on. So let's that move. That feels like one of those, like, quick ones you see on a ballot when you're voting in an election. That they throw that, but then underneath that, they're like, also, we're going to cut funding for all of this in the municipality. Yeah, no, exactly. It's, it, it's one that, it's filler material there, for sure. And I don't think there's any harm or foul in it. And I think, honestly, for officiating crews and people up in the press box, I you know, and people sitting in the stands who are trying to watch it by number. I mean, obviously, when you're watching on TV, it's a lot easier to keep up with who's who than it is when you're sitting up in the eagle's nest. So I, I, I think that helps, but it's it's straightforward. You, you, okay, NCAA, way to go. Right. Second one is right in that same vein as well. You know, it including the number zero as a legal uniform number. I love it. Yeah. I want I want the biggest, fattest defensive tackle to wear number zero every single year for every single team. I think that's great. Yeah. Any guy who has a possibility of scoring fat guy touchdowns needs to be wearing a zero, I think. That should be in the the Peisman Trophy standings. Yes. Um, that should be like worth five points or something like that if you're also number zero. I think that, yeah, if you're wearing the donut and you're the guy on the team who's most likely to plow through a dozen, I think, yeah, excellent. I hadn't thought of it from that angle, but I love it. So, you know, okay, NCAA, you're two for two, right? Way to go. You, you've got some... some easy to pass rules changes I think here the third one is dealing with the targeting rule and specifically looking at players who are ejected for targeting uh, being permitted to remain on the sidelines not having to go back to the locker room yeah I that's not the targeting rule change I was hoping to see I've mentioned this before what I really wanted to see from targeting was the basketball flagrant one, flagrant two rule come into effect. So, you know, flagrant one, it's a penalty or even, you know, whatever. It's 15 yards and, you know, you get a second one in the game or you're ejected and maybe even a suspension gets tacked on to it. Because there's so many, there's so much, there's still so much subjective about the targeting rule in my mind where it's just not consistently called from week to week. So this, you know, whatever, sure, let them stay on the sideline. I don't have any issue with that. It's just not really what I was hoping to see um, this summer from the targeting rules. No, it's one of those things where the NCAA kind of looked at, hey, targeting's been a big buzzword the past couple of years. Let's make sure there's something about targeting in our rules changes, but it's not going to be what people want. Um, you know, I, I don't think there's... It, it doesn't hurt much, this rule change, but I don't think it, it doesn't help anything either. There's, And the other part that really came to my mind was, it, has there been a major issue with players having to go back to the locker room? Like, 
is there inherent value with keeping them on the sideline as well? Or does this just open the door for shenanigans, for instance, with um, that maybe they're trying to curb with, you know, uniform number issues that they're sorting out and whatnot? But couldn't you see a coach trying to change somebody's fucking jersey at halftime or something and get them back on the field? You got a helmet on. You find the guy who's roughly the same height and build. So, it's a lot harder to pull off the old switcheroo nowadays with as many cameras that are out there, but you got to figure back like 50 years ago, that was probably something that happened all the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I, I, I don't see why they're doing this other than putting that buzzword out there, but I, and I don't think it, it offers any added value unless there's some coachable moment that can come from being on the sideline rather than being in the locker room. Maybe just a leadership perspective. You get, you know, a big player like the guy who came to mind right away for me was when Devin White got thrown out for targeting a couple of years ago for LSU. You know, team captain Devin White being able to stay on the sideline to motivate his guys, participate in the huddle, see, show them what he's seeing. I mean, I can sure, I'm sure there's value in that. That's true. And, yeah, I mean, for, you know, veteran players especially, being able to stay out there in that regard could be valuable. But then it also asks, what's the, I mean, yes, you're not able to be on the field. That's an obvious penalty to the targeting rule. But wasn't the entire intent of targeting that you're not involved in the game anymore? You're, you're obviously able to influence the outcome in some way still if you're engaging with your teammates and able to point out things they might not be seeing and whatnot. So I could see it both ways. I mean, I think in this regard, I'm going to say you punted on the more important thing in CAA. Yeah, it's it's tone deaf from the NCAA, like you said. Getting the targeting buzzword, they know people haven't been happy with the targeting rule. So it's them taking a baby step and be like, hey, look, isn't this a little bit better? Yeah, exactly. Moving on, let's put targeting aside for a moment since, since the NCAA did as well. The fourth possible rule change is extending the officiating crew's jurisdiction prior to kickoff from 60 to 90 minutes, um, also requiring a coach to be on the field during warm-ups and identifying each player by number, and I'm assuming this means that on their warm-up gear they have to have some kind of number as well now. That ne- wasn't necessarily clear to me, but that was the assumption I made of that. Obviously, this is dealing with recent pregame incidents that have happened off the field. Um, and I, I guess I get why the NCAA is doing that. Do you do you have a, a any suspicion, like, I'll be honest, I do, that this could result in some more um, blanket punishments moving down the line? If this passes, what we're going to end up having is a star player is going to do something stupid in a pregame, throw a punch or shove, and they're going to be thrown preemptively thrown out of the game. And it's going to impact the result, and the fans are going to just lose it. And you couldn't even blame them. So I, 
you know, who doesn't love a good pregame pushing and shoving match? Like, I love logging on to Twitter or watching, you know, pregame shows and stuff like that and getting to see that. You know, obviously the um, everyone's already so hyped an hour and a half before kickoff. They're ready to go out there. That usually leads to a high impact and a really good football game because everybody's obviously really laying it out there and wanting to win so badly that, you know, the juices get pumping. And that's just natural in sports is to have that happen. Like, I don't think we've had enough instances where anything majorly bad has happened in these pregames. It's always a lot of just shit talking. It's all yeah. it is for, you know, better or worse. And it's it's all it is. It's pushing and shoving and talking. It's like boxers meeting at weigh-ins and jawing back and forth and shoving and everyone getting to take fun pictures of that. And that's the lead in on sports center when they're talking about the boxers weigh in, right? Yeah. It's the same thing for that. So I, I don't see why it's a big deal. See, the one reason I do think it's a big deal, I think back to last year's red river shootout in uh, the cotton bowl between Oklahoma and Texas, when they scuffled before the game and the officials gave every player on both rosters a personal foul penalty. Even guys who were in the locker room, because they... they, And I think this is where the identifying players by number comes in, is that you you reduce the risk of just having officials throw a blanket punishment down on both teams. You can actually identify who's who by their number and say you got the first foul. But I, I, I see this as definitely a risk of having more of that, where teams come into a big rivalry game playing more tentatively because they've already got one mark on their on their record before they even play it down. I think that's the one thing that scares me about this rule. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I, I don't see any reason for it to be in place. I, I think it's... You know, just another instance of trying to take some of the fun away from it. And like you said, that a great point on the Red River rivalry as well, because I remember when that happened, just being baffled that, my God, one person in this game gets a personal foul and sportsmanlike conduct penalty and they're ejected. Like, that's yep. nuts. I don't remember anything major happening in that game to cause a big player to get ejected, but it was certainly there for the possibility. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's ultimately what we could see happen with that. Especially, you know, you extend the jurisdiction another half hour, you give officials half as much time again to, you know, kind of come down with a draconian punishment on an entire team or an entire set of teams. Well, let's move on to the last last of these rule change proposals, because this is one that actually could have an impact on the game, I think, more than any of these other four. And that's, uh, you know, adopting as a guideline a maximum of two minutes for instant replay reviews. We've seen some... Yeah, we've seen some really long replay reviews in the recent past. And, uh, you know, obviously this would speed up the replay process... You know, you wouldn't, you, you'd reduce the overall run of games, the, the run time of a game, which we've seen creep up to four plus hours in recent years for some games. And that's not just, you know, the college football playoff national championship. And that's not games that are going into overtime even. That's just regulation games that have been going that long. And I think, you know, that's something that, 
it's worth addressing. And, you know, for me, a replay is supposed to catch something that just gets blatantly missed. You know, something that's so glaringly obvious when you run back the tape and you play it again that you're like, okay, you were the blind ref in that moment. Let's correct it and move on with life. You know, and we've seen this in other sports as well, nitpicking every little bit of video possible, every frame. And what we have to remember is that the picture you're looking at is can't even give you a perfect view of it. You don't, you know, the angles aren't always dead on. You can't say with definity, you know, with any definitive stance where a ball is specifically at. Or was this knee down before the ball started slipping out? Or was this elbow down or whatever? So I think too often we take replay too far and try to parse it out and get the perfect answer when sports isn't about a perfect answer. No, I I like the idea of if you can't figure it out in two minutes, the call stands on the field. Because like you said, that means it wasn't obvious. That means it's not likely going to be conclusive evidence to make that call. And I mean, how many times everyone out there, you watch a football game at home, you see an instant replay, it doesn't take you two minutes to make a determination on whether that call was right or not. And if it does take you longer than that, then again, the call stands on the field, let's move forward, let's just play the rest of the damn game. Yeah, I mean, we don't need seven, eight, nine minutes to run through every angle at one 360th mode. You know, trying to look at every knuckle on the field. It it really makes me think of the whole argument about the video-assisted referee in soccer. Good old VAR. VAR. It, it's, you know, we're seeing points where they're, they're taking it down to millimeters when the camera isn't even that accurate. You know, it... it so, you know, the best technology in terms of cameras, especially with motion camera, you're looking at, you know, three to five millimeters, give or take. That's what they talk about with, like, the Hawkeye system in tennis. And that's a relative, you know, you have the lines painted down on the court. The lines aren't going anywhere. And you still have to give a three to five millimeter allowance with that. It, it's It's something where we can get too ingrained in the fineries of it and you know lose lose sight of the fact that we're playing a damn game here let's get back to playing the game yeah the lengthy replay reviews stunt momentum for drives and everything like that the players get cool and it also to me increases the risk of injury and stuff too because you've got players who sit there and they get tight and then they pull a hamstring or something like that because of it. So, I mean, there's, I, I think this would be perfect. I think putting a cap on that is honestly long overdue. You and me both. Well, on that note, we've gone through our five uh, rules changes. Let us know if you think any of them are, uh, if your opinion differs on these rules changes than ours, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, you can hit both of us up on Twitter. For now, we're going to go take our second break quickly, and when we come back, we're going to be looking at early 2020 Heisman Trophy odds. Stay tuned. Welcome back for our final segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. 
We just finished talking about the NCAA's proposed rule changes, uh, which ones were more satisfying and less satisfying than others, and uh, which ones are just kind of drop-in-the-bucket filler. We're going to move on now to something a little bit speculative. This is going to change over the course of the offseason, of course, but we've got some some early returns on Heisman Trophy odds for the 2020 season. And, you know, I, I think the big thing that I immediately took away, we ended up aggregating from three different recent sites. So you've got Las Vegas Superbook uh, released odds on February 5th. Um, that was published in a Sports Illustrated piece on the same date. Uh, you have FanDuel published their most recent odds on February 18th through their sports book. And then, you know, William Hill, the big international sports book, released their uh, updated odds just a couple of days ago on February 27th. So uh, we're going to take a, a look at these odds, see where you might be able to find some good value, who might be an overreach, and uh, who might be that surprise that emerges out of the woodwork, uh, a la some of our recent winners in, you know, over the past decade or so. I think at the very top, John, there's really no surprises. You've got Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence. They're kind of the one-two right now, and uh, everybody else is trying to play catch-up with them. Yeah, absolutely. Those are the the two preemptive favorites coming into the year, but I'm always really cautious when I'm looking at these long odds for this because – how often do does the preseason favorite for the Heisman Trophy actually win the Heisman? I mean, no one saw Joe Burrow coming out and winning the Heisman last last season. Like, no one who watched Joe Burrow play football in 2018 thought he would have one of the greatest single seasons in college football history last season. If you did, well, you're lying. Or you and I should take a trip to Vegas together because you're obviously a genius and we should go win some money. So I don't think there's great value with those two guys. Obviously they have really good shots. Uh, I worry with Trevor Lawrence that Clemson's going to fall under the whole, well, I don't really play anybody thing again most of the season in 2020 to where he doesn't have as many opportunities to shine on the big stage as a guy like Justin Fields at Ohio State might have in some of the games they'll play. So I think that'll hurt. But uh was there a guy that really stood out to you, Zach, down the list that really looked like good value? You know, it's interesting when you you look at some of these odds and some of the guys that they're going to take, you know, if you want to take long odds on somebody, you pretty much have to look at a quarterback, I think. And that's, you know, who do you think is going to be the guy that really breaks out and has that huge year? I think... um You know, in that vein of quarterbacks, I'm looking at the list again here, and I'd have to say maybe somebody like a, a Kyle Trask. You know, he's got 50 to 1 odds at most sites, 60 to 1 at others. Um, and that really depends on what happens with Georgia, because I think it comes down to Florida or Georgia again in the SEC East. Obviously, you know, after we get out of spring ball and get into the summer, we'll be looking at that more deeply, but. The past couple of years, it's come down to 
the world's largest outdoor cocktail party in determining who wins that that division. And I think it pretty much comes down to the same thing again this year. And I could see Trask being a, a, you know, he had a good season last year. I could see him busting out. And if Florida has a good year, he's got real potential in that regard. Um, you know, Chuba Hubbard at Oklahoma State, I like the look on that. He's, get, you know, he's getting 50-1 to 1 odds at FanDuel right now. I'm imagining those are going to go down considering the other books have him at 20-1 to 1 and 25-1. to 1. So... I uh I think if you can get him at 50 to 1 that's awesome. So those those were the two that really stood out most to me um in terms of a quarterback and then somebody outside of that quarterback realm that could have the possibility of of sneaking in. See, I also like to play at Oklahoma State, but I saw Spencer Sanders as Heisman odds and really likes those. A lot of that out average, he's at 50 to 1 across the three sports books. So, I, you know, we've talked a couple weeks ago. I talked about how I thought that Oklahoma State, with the Big 12 kind of looking wide open this year, had a really good shot to jump up. And if they're able to get into that Big 12 title game, win a Big 12 championship, and potentially have a shot at elevating into the playoff at that point, you know, you got to look at a guy like Spencer Sanders, the guy piloting that offense as a potential Heisman candidate. And I also liked Brock Purdy a little bit mm. at Iowa State. Um, 61 at two of them, and FanDuel has him as 101. So like you said, with Chuba Hubbard, that will probably come down a decent bit on FanDuel yeah. because they're so different than everybody else. But I like Brock Purdy's game. I think he's a total baller. He has the dual threat ability as well that will always impress because he'll be able to have games where he might throw for 300 yards and rush for 100 yards and pile up the stats. And again, with the Big 12 being as open as it is, it wouldn't be a shock if Iowa State leaped up the standings. Maybe I'm making the same mistake I made last offseason again where I overinflated the Cyclones and thought they were going to be a legitimate contender in the Big 12. Maybe I'm too big of a believer in Purdy and Matt Campbell um, in Ames, but I, I genuinely think that he could have that kind of season that could elevate him into the conversation. I think that's definitely an interesting one. We both uh, we both bit the uh, the bug for the Cyclones last year. You know, it didn't quite pan out, but that team played some some close games. It wasn't like they were embarrassed at any point. So, I, I think that's another good one that you could look at and be really intrigued by the possibility. Um, you also, you know, I want, th- I want to come back to Trevor Lawrence for a second, because I think we could see the exact same thing happen this year that we saw last year where Travis Etienne gets some of that buzz off of him as well. Just the fact that you see, you know, both of those guys doing well out of the backfield and the fact that they kind of bounce back and forth, who has the preeminent game in any given game. Uh, sometimes ETN puts them on his back. We saw that a couple of times last year, um, especially earlier in the season when Lawrence was looking in his sophomore slump moment. So I, I think that, you know, especially because he's, you know, his longest odds are 25 to 1. So he's already considered among that second tier of contenders in the race. So, you know, buttressing 
what he's able to do in that backfield with what Trevor Lawrence is also able to do in that backfield. I think they they take each other to it, you know. They complement each other really well on the field, and they hurt each other in the Heisman race, so. No, I think that's a really good point. That could ultimately hurt both Spencer Sanders and Chuba Hubbard in Oklahoma State as well, or even a Mac Jones and Najee Harris at Alabama if Mac Jones is Alabama starting quarterback next year, which I have thoughts on that that I'll give much later on. Um, a non-quarterback for me, too, and maybe it's the homer in me that I think is kind of shot, Jalen Waddle, uh, Alabama wide receiver Jalen Waddle, I think with his ability to return kicks and punts, and obviously, you know, he led the country last season in punt return yardage, him being able to house a couple kicks and punts, maybe get four or five return touchdowns to go along with a big year as a receiver in Alabama's offense, that could put him in the conversation. We don't normally see receivers get really up there, but with his ability to impact the game as an all-purpose player, I think that's another one that I would keep an eye on. Maybe even, and the fact that Alabama shouldn't win a lot of games because it's it's similar to Rondell Moore at Purdue and what he can do as an all-purpose player but it's unlikely Purdue will be able to win enough games to get him serious consideration. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I think that's a great, great one to pick out of the mix because uh, Waddle does have, you know, sort of that Swiss Army knife capability to him. So one I thought was interesting that I, I want to make sure we talk about is K.J. Costello, the Stanford transfer at Mississippi State. You know, he was in the earliest of these three, you know, books that we have on hand. He was 100 to 1 odds. But in the FanDuel and the William Hill odds that have come out more recently, he's dropped in half. You know, 40 to 1 at, at, at FanDuel, 50 to 1 at William Hill. And what are people seeing here? Is it just the fact that he's connecting with Mike Leach? Because it, I don't think we're going, you know, we've seen Mike Leach quarterbacks put up ridiculous numbers before and even be in contention for their division, which I don't think is necessarily something that's going to happen for Mississippi State this year. So w- w- what are they seeing here, John? Do you have any idea? Yeah, I, I think it's the potential that Costello displayed um, in 2018 at Stanford. He came in. So the 2019 season, if you're looking at early mock drafts for 2020, he was a guy who was mocked by pretty much everyone as a consensus first-round pick. So he's got all the potential in the world. Obviously, things went very wrong last season for Stanford. So maybe a change of scenery, a guy in Leach who's a proven quarterback guru and a quarterback whisperer at this point, carving out you know Gardner Minshew a couple years ago. Um, you know, to uh, an NFL draft pick. I I see how people might think Costello will have a really good year. I just still can't see how anyone could think Mississippi State's going to win enough games to make that happen. You know, it's, you don't typically see a Heisman winner on a team that goes 8-5 and five or 8-4 and four or whatever it is. Um, and I, I think it would be a challenge for the Bulldogs to – carve their way out of the SEC West. Obviously, it's a very difficult division with Alabama, LSU, Auburn, Texas A&M should make a leap next year, one would think as well. So I I just can't see, especially in year one under Leach, who 
you know, is converting Mississippi State from a power running team to a, a heavy passing team, that's going to be a challenge, and I just can't see. Obviously, getting Costello was a huge coup because they needed a quarterback to run his system yeah. because the guys that he had in Starkville really fit what, you know, Dan Mullen had wanted to do and had recruited there in the past, and then Moorhead had kind of incorporated um, in Starkville. So I, I just can't see Mississippi State being good enough, but I can see, I guess, there is some logic there. Two other names I want to throw out for you. Uh, a couple of transfers are really high up on this list, and we've seen transfer quarterbacks do incredibly well in recent years in the Heisman race, winning three out of the past three. So, Derek King at Miami and Jamie Newman at Georgia are both basically in the top five of all, most of these sports books in terms of where they're rated in the Heisman race. Which one of these two do you think has the better shot of actually putting themselves, getting themselves a trip to Manhattan this year? That's a good question. I think both actually have a pretty good shot. Um, I think Jamie Newman's flying under the radar a little bit as a transfer, like because he came from Wake Forest. But if you look at his numbers with the Demon Deacons last year, they were really impressive. Now he's got a lot more of a supporting cast surrounding him in Athens than he did in Winston-Salem, that's for sure. Um, and if Georgia finally gets over the hump and can win an SEC championship, um, you'd have to think that a big reason for that would be that Newman provided the difference that Jake Fromm couldn't do in the quarterback position for them. I would say him, but I also really am high on De'Aaron King in Miami. And as bad as Miami's been on offense, if he can turn Miami from, you know, the 100-whatever-ranked offense in the country to a top 25 to 30 offense in the country, the Hurricanes are probably going to be the team to beat in the Coastal Division. And if they're able to do that, and he can potentially even spring a surprise upset in the ACC title game against Trevor Lawrence and Clemson, and yes, and yes I am already penciling them in as the Atlantic Division champions right now in March, um, I think that would be enough to get him. So I think both of those guys are, fur, are far enough down the list for value to actually provide the type of value you would look for in long-term Heisman odds. And both, there's a lot of logic that can back up both of them making a serious run of the trophy. Yeah. You know, you can make 10 times back your money with either of these guys at the very least in terms of the lowest possible odds. So not a bad idea to lay a little bit on either of them, I think. One, I think it might be a less good idea in this sort of second tier of quarterbacks. Adrian Martinez at Nebraska is rated really highly in a couple of these, you know. Not necessarily, you know, those teen odds, but 25 to 40 to 1, you know, 25 to 1 to 40 to 1, I, I think might even be a little bit high low in terms of those odds I think he could be a much longer shot and still be the type of person you don't necessarily see coming out of the woodwork so no yeah I agree I it's that Nebraska bump that we've seen the last couple of years um with Scott Frost and all that so I I think that's a bit high too he was I think roughly around that area uh, coming into last season as well. 
Yeah, and I don't know what they saw that that makes them feel like he belongs right there, you know, sort of at that null point. But that kind of threw me for a loop when I first saw it. Um, was there anybody else on the list that you saw, you know, sort of in, in those first couple of tiers where you were, were just really curious about what they were doing there? Yeah, I mean, again, not to get on the Homer side of thing, but I thought Bo Nix being that high was a bit ridiculous. Obviously, he showed some flashes last season, but Auburn's success a lot of times last year came in spite of Knicks due to, you know, their defense making a lot of plays or, you know, their running game or whatever it was. So I think him being that high is a bit of a a bit of a reach at this stage because I don't think he's shown anything that would make me think that he's a future Heisman winner at this point. Yeah, I, you know, I hate to be sour grapes and whatnot because he did end up leading that winning touchdown drive against Oregon, but for most of that game, he was garbage, and he ended up with really unimpressive stats against the Ducks, notwithstanding the fact that he ultimately walked away with the W. But, yeah, over the course of the year, he was one of those Jekyll and Hyde players that is completely natural to expect from a freshman, you know? It, you don't expect him to be polished gold at that point, but... Uh, yeah, I thought that one was a little bit curious. I'm also, uh, you know, I find it interesting looking at Sam Ellinger keeps getting the bump as well. Uh, you know, he was as low as 14 to 1 back at the beginning of February. And by the end of the month, he's still sitting there at uh, 20 to 1. So... Obvious, yeah. Obviously, you know, we, we mentioned it with a couple of other players. The the Big 12 is really wide open. Um, but, I, I you know, and, and at the same time, he's one of the more veteran quarterbacks in the league. But I'm a little hesitant to say that Texas is going to have the kind of season that w it would require for him to really be pushing into the Heisman race. I also think it's really interesting just to kind of throw a couple more out there and then, you know, we can, I'll, I'll give you your last chance to give your piece and then we can, we can call it good. But quarterbacks, we haven't even seen anything from yet. Spencer Rattler at Oklahoma, I think is, is really just getting that bump because Lincoln Riley's been the quarterback whisperer of recent years. And, um, Miles Brennan at LSU, especially with Joe Brady not being there as the passing game coordinator anymore. I'm really curious to see how that's going to all play out before we really ride that hype much. So yeah, I you know, I guess the final thing I'd like to throw out there for you is do you think, what do you think of when we see a quarterback like a Rattler or a Brennan really high on this list and would you caution people against betting against or, or betting on somebody like that? Yeah, I mean, Spencer Rattler was a five-star recruit, uh, a guy who impressed in some instances he got to play in mop-up duty for Jalen Hurts last year. So, And like you said, you know, two of the last three Heisman Trophy winners are Lincoln Riley quarterbacks, and Jalen Hurts was a finalist last year. So, you know, I can see, I think having him as the third best odds without seeing him take a meaningful snap is probably a little bit um, high at this point. But I can see, again, 
the Riley bump in that instance, getting him up there. And obviously, again, the Big 12 being open as it is, he's going to put up numbers in that Oklahoma offense, um, and he should have a chance to uh, be considered among them. I Miles Brennan, though, I haven't really seen anything out of him that would make me think that he should be even in the conversation at this point. And I could be totally wrong because I haven't seen enough tape on him to be able to say, but that's the he's in the situation that, hey, LSU's quarterback last year won the Heisman. They're going to try to run a similar offense. Maybe he'll put up big numbers as well. He's got a ton of skill position talent around him still, yeah. and, you know, led by last year's Bolitnikoff winner and Jamar Chase. So, you know, he gets the bump because his um, – the quarterback above him last year won the Heisman and maybe a little bit of that rubbed off on him. I don't know. I know I've – I've seen and talked to a lot of LSU fans who have told me that he's basically the second coming of Christ. So, I, you know, we'll see. I think they're expecting Burrow 2.0, and I, I would caution them to lower their expectations a bit because, you know, I don't foresee that kind of season happening again from a second guy. Yeah, I, I think that's the big thing I would say there. There's real potential, and... I think if you saw longer odds on either of these guys, even if they were in that 40 to 50 range, um, you might have something to actually look at. But when they're sitting there at, you know, Spencer Rattler is 12 to 1 across the board at every sports book right now. So that's not much value. There's not much meat on the bone for a player like that. Obviously, it's nothing to scoff about, but. Do you really want to, if you're looking for a guy outside of the, the favorites, do you, it's that the guy you really want to pick in his first year as a starter? And it's, you know, it's the same thing. I think there are even more red flags around Miles Brennan. You know, that team, it was kind of their moment, LSU's moment. They knew what they had. They had to go all in on it, and it paid off. Um, you know, just like we said, LSU and Utah were those two teams last year that were, were really in it to win it. And LSU did, you know, Utah flamed out at the end, but not only did they lose their field general on offense, but they lost their sideline guru as well. And I, you know, that's not to say that LSU doesn't have great coaches on the sidelines still managing things, but Brady obviously had an influence with the passing game, and I think that's something we we can't set aside too quickly when looking at Brennan's chances. Right. I, they replaced Joe Brady with Scott Linehan. I think any fan of the Lions or Cowboys in the NFL would tell you that that's, that's going to be a town grade. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I just I don't see that paying dividends for them. Um, but maybe it does. Who knows? We've been wrong about odds before. So, uh, on that note, everybody, it's uh, time for us to say goodbye. It's been such a pleasure getting to talk with you yet again in our off-season journey toward the 2020 season. You can catch us every Wednesday morning when we come out with a new edition of the Saturday Blitz podcast. And you can shoot us all your vitriol you want on Twitter at ZBagalki or at JLMitchell93. Either one will get you to us and uh, give you a place to vent yourself as you're getting into your off-season jitters. So, 
hopefully you're able to get through the rest of the week before we talk again. I look forward to talking more college football with you as well, John. And uh, have a wonderful rest of your week, everybody. We'll talk again soon.